Welcome to the Aerotape Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Chris Murray, Managing Director and CEO of Geodynamics Limited. It's wonderful to have you along today. I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation with Chris to you. I've known him for probably six or seven years, and he was one of my very first clients when I started Arate Executive back in around 2009. So it's been interesting to watch his career unfold over that period, and obviously now moving into his new role as MD and CEO of Geodynamics. I find it fascinating to catch up with people who are literally in their first few months and getting an insight into the kind of things that are important to them when starting a new role and when creating a vision for the future for themselves and their teams. Before I get into introducing Chris to you more formally, let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives who are actively looking for a new role. So if I can assist you in recruiting any vacancies within your team or alternatively assisting you in your own career, feel free to give me a call or reach out via our website or LinkedIn. Let me now formally introduce to you, Chris Murray. Chris Murray was born in Sydney, Australia, and after completing a Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering, he's worked his entire career within the energy sector. He's been a consultant, he's owned his own business, he's run research and development facilities, and he's also worked in larger organisations, including approximately 10 years with Energy Developments Limited, working across a range of functions, predominantly at executive general manager level. He's been in his current role since January 2016 as Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Geodynamics Limited. He's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a graduate of the Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program. He serves on the board of the Leukaemia Foundation of Australia as a non-executive director. Chris lives in Brisbane, Australia with his wife and his two growing children. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Chris Murray. Well, uh, Chris, welcome to the Aratate Podcast. It's great to have you along today. You and I have known each other, wow, well, I guess for about six or seven years yeah. now. Uh, and it's good to uh, re-engage with you in your new role. So perhaps uh, for the benefit of people who are listening in today, let's just start with uh, telling us what you're up to professionally at the moment. Thanks, Richard. It's good to be here. I'm the CEO and Managing Director of Geodynamics Limited and of our sub Quantum Power Limited. The Geodynamics has been um, for a number of years a developer of geothermal uh, energy technology and mm-hmm. built a demonstration plant in the Cooper Basin and was able to demonstrate that technology successfully. But unfortunately, the technology was not commercially viable. Mm-hmm. So over the last couple of years, Richard, the company went about uh, winding up its geothermal development and remediating the project that we built out in the Cooper Basin mm-hmm. and looking around to utilise the cash that we had as a public company and the skills that we had to do something different in the clean energy space. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the, uh, the ori- original intent, read the technology, because I remember at the time, you know, it was being seen as groundbreaking and uh, and incredibly innovative. Um, so tell tell people what was that all about. So the original technology was to drill uh, into very deep granite thermal resource where mm-hmm. the uh, thermal energy is caused by slow um, uh, nuclear decay. Okay. And the idea was that you would uh, effectively pump a solution, a brine solution, down into the hot granite, mm-hmm. and then you would. Uh, crack the granite so that the hot brine came up another well mm-hmm. about five kilometres down mm-hmm. and you would circulate that hot brine solution uh, and then exchange that heat over to another circuit on the surface create steam and use that steam to generate electricity right so it genuinely is renewable energy with no fuel cost 
what really um, made the technology difficult commercially was the fact that the cost of drilling to those depths is very high mm -hmm. and unfortunately the geothermal resources are largely a long way from large users of power okay. which is population bases. Yeah, sure. So in the end it was just too expensive to produce the energy and too expensive to get it to the national electricity market. Right and um, I mean obviously you weren't here in the business at the time but uh, I imagine that uh, it must have been you know, a sad day for them to come to a realisation that this dream uh, was just going to be unfulfilled yeah it was and there's still people now that have stayed with the business right through and we have a lot of staff that are really committed to renewable energy um, and saw this as something that they wanted to do from a life point of view as well as a professional point of view okay yeah and we've got a lot of investors that are still shareholders mm -hmm. today that have seen their investment um, decrease in value but are still very committed to the idea of renewable energy mm-hmm okay and so now the new orientation is to take the business uh, in a very different direction. Tell us a bit about that. So in September last year, Geodynamics purchased a company called Quantum Power. And Quantum is an expert at taking waste streams from the agricultural and food processing sector and turning them into electricity. Mm -hmm. So they would take a waste stream, let's say from a dairy farm, uh, and anaerobically digest the waste to produce methane. Mm -hmm run that methane in an engine to produce electricity and then sell the electricity to the farmer or the food processing facility, what we call behind the meter. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there's any excess, we would then sell that into the national electricity market. Mm -hmm. We can also, because it's renewable energy, we can get access to uh, the renewable, large scale renewable energy certificates okay. and to other various schemes that are around to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. We think it's a great business to be in. There's an increase in high intensity um, uh, agricultural activity in Australia, driven primarily by the demand for protein from a, uh, a population base that's increasing in Asia mm. and becoming more middle class. Mm -hmm. So they've got an increasing demand for protein. Mm -hmm. um, we can meet that demand. Yep. And there's also, of course, uh, an increasing demand for renewable energy. So mm -hmm. I see this particular um, technology and commercial opportunity as a real nexus between those two demands for increasing protein and for increasing renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And unlike the fracking technology, this technology is proven and uh, you know, there's a, a much uh, sounder commercial reality, I imagine. Yeah, Richard, this technology has been used for many years, particularly in North America and in Europe. Um, and so it's considered as best practice for this type of waste stream in those okay. countries. Yep. But it's not been common practice in Australia mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. So we're just applying technology that's known mm -hmm. to a new commercial model in Australia. Okay, okay, great. And I know from your background, uh, you know, energy and alternative energy has been a, a theme right throughout your career. So let's uh, start by going back to uh, where it all began and tell us a little bit about where you were born and uh, your early life. Richard, I grew up in Sydney in what I would consider to be a, a pretty typical middle-class Sydney family. Uh -huh. Two sisters, mum and dad. Um, you know, looking back, I really think I had a, a wonderful and a blessed childhood. Um, we lived in the suburbs, we went to public schools, uh, we had a, had a caravan and then a little holiday place on okay. Lake Macquarie, and we did a lot of family activities together, a lot of water skiing, fishing, sailing. So really what I consider, a, a, you know, a great Australian uh, upbringing. Sure, and what did your parents do for work? So my dad was a valuer with the Electricity Commission of New South Wales, okay. which was sort of my first connection to the yeah, electricity right. industry. Okay. Um, and my mum was a full-time mum, but she was a nurse before. Okay. Had, she had kids and she went back to nursing when we were old enough to make our own lunches. Right, that was um, my story too, with my mum. <laughs> and, uh, and sorry, and you said, did you have sisters? Two sisters right. um, still live in the in the Sydney area. Okay. Yeah. Older or younger? They're both younger. Okay, right. Yeah. Uh -huh. So... Uh, you uh, ruled the roost. Well, I thought I did, but I actually think that my uh, my second youngest sister ruled the roost. Oh, really? But anyway, I tried to carry that pretense. Okay, sure. And so uh, you went uh, uh, through high school, and then did you go directly to university from there? Yeah, I went to Pennant Hills High School in Sydney, um, and then I went to New South Wales University, which mm -hmm. was at Randwick, okay. um, and I went straight from school. 
I was lucky enough to benefit from the New South Wales State Government Cadetship Program. Okay. Um, these programs no longer exist, but at the time I was employed by the Electricity Commission and my job was to go to uni. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so you I couldn't have had a better uh, start to my career really to be to be supported financially to go to university all the way through. And what about, um, you said your father was working in the electricity industry. Um, what was it that got you passionate about that? Was it seeing him as a role model or were there other, other elements? Well, I did see my dad professionally as a role model, but really what drove me was the fact that I loved things mechanical. So I'm a mechanical engineer even though I'm in the electricity industry. Yeah. Um, but my dad and I had a real passion of tinkering with motors. So okay. dad taught me how to pull a lawnmower apart, then we bought a motorbike and we pulled that apart and we're really into boating. So we would build ski boats together, okay. overhaul the engines, you know, that was just my hobby as a kid was right. doing that mechanical stuff with dad yeah. and then nothing better than going and giving the boat or the motorbike a run after you'd rebuilt it. Sure. So. I just had a real passion for things mechanical, mm -hmm. translated then to cars when I got a license. Okay. And so for me, it was a foregone conclusion that I would uh, do mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And I was just lucky enough, um, partly through the connections through dad, um, knowing that those cadetships were available to get a cadetship as a mechanical engineer with mm -hmm. the Electricity Commission. So in the cadetship model, were you actually working at the same time as studying or basically it was uh, uh, just a, a source of income for you? Uh, Richard, it was Nirvana. I went to uni full time and didn't have to work, but got right. paid a wage. Okay. So, unfortunately, I think for our kids, those um, those things don't exist anymore. Sure. But it was a, a real a real cadetship program. Mm -hmm. And so, were you obliged post university that you had to work for a number of years, uh, a bit like when the uh, armed forces put you through a degree, or is it not? Now, Richard, the Whitlam government abolished those um, indenture periods okay. after cadetships before I started. Right. So I was free to either stay with the Electricity Commission or to leave. So okay. I actually worked for them for one year. Yeah. During the course, we worked at, during our Christmas holidays for them. So I got experience at different power stations okay. and in head office and design. And then I worked for them for one year and then and then left. Right. And, uh, and so then moving into um, Palmet. Yeah, for the next five years or so, I went and worked for a number of small companies that primarily did research and development. Okay. So Palmet was a little company that did um, mechanical fabrication and, and welding to earn an income, but they were uh, run by a couple of mad R&D boffins who were trying to develop a lightweight steel pallet. Okay. So I really got a taste there for understanding how small businesses work right. and also for research and development. And um, mm -hmm. for better or for worse, I've come back to research and development many times sure. in my career. Um, so that was great grounding working for Palmet and then a couple of other subsequent companies and, and just finding out how little businesses work and learning that lesson that um, the most important rule in business is don't run out of cash. Right. And, uh, and was that part of the reason you were exiting and moving into new things is they ran out of cash? Exactly right, Richard. <laughs> so how many of those uh, little uh, career segues did you have? I had a couple of those, Richard. Firstly right. with Palmet. Yeah. Um, and then later than that um, with Rue International, a little company that was developing optic fibres. Okay. And, and both of those companies ended up running out of cash. Right. Okay. And so uh, and so, where to from there? So I then went and uh, and started a consulting business. Right. I really wanted to work for myself. Okay. I got the introduction to small business again as a kid when um, my dad and mum encouraged me to earn my pocket money by mowing their lawns and then right. the neighbours. And then my first business venture was a chook run. Okay. So my dad capitalised the business and helped me build the chook shed and buy the chooks. Right. I sold the eggs to my mum. Right. Um, had that for a few years, but when uh, supply and demand became in balance and it was unprofitable, I then sold the business to my sister. <laughs> so I learned some early business um, right. strategies then, Richard. Okay. So I formed a consulting business and mm -hmm. really did for the next five years or so worked doing contract and consulting work back to the energy industry. So I did a lot of work back in overhauling power stations, working right. as a project engineer and a survey engineer okay. and then the commissioning engineer, right. back at some of the power stations that I'd worked at when I was employed by the mm -hmm. Electricity Commission. Mm -hmm. And at that stage, the state government was uh, starting to privatise the maintenance of their major power stations. Okay. So during that period, I worked at most of the major power stations in New South Wales. 
um, state-owned as mm -hmm. well as power stations that were owned by the likes of ICI and BHP. Mm -hmm. But the preference for you was to do it uh, as your own consultancy rather than going and working for you know one of the major players in that space. Yeah, I like that. That suited me at the time. I had a small office that was close to home and had a young family, so okay. I liked doing that. Yeah. Um, and as the business grew, I had a couple of employees and then eventually took on a partner and really formed a proper consulting uh, business called Murray Marshall and Associates. Okay. And, uh, and you've had that business again for about five years? Yeah, we, my partner Craig Marshall and I, who still remain friends today, mm -hmm. had a pretty clear objective. We didn't think we wanted to do this forever, right. um, and, but we both had young families and we were both travelling a lot to the various power stations okay. and that we felt that by joining together mm -hmm. we would have be able to support one another by mm -hmm. letting us take leave, sure. it was easy, easier for us to fund employees, yep. we both had different skills. Mm -hmm. So we had a five year business plan which okay. was to do that for five years, right. to allow us to be close to our kids. We both had mm -hmm. um, kids that were about the same age while they were in their early school years and to participate in things like their school P&Cs and, Cs and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. And then we'd reevaluate the business after five years. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a great business, you know, employed anything from two people to 20 people, depending on workload. Did a lot of work in the local uh, agricultural sector, mining, coal mining in particular in the Hunter Valley. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of power station design and consulting work. Um, it was a, a really terrific professional and personal period of my mm -hmm. life. Okay. So you reached the end of your five-year business plan and had it just it, it had run its course by that stage, time, time for change. Yeah, by that stage, um, we realised that we both wanted to do different things. Craig is a really outstanding project manager and project consultant, and he wanted to pursue that as a career. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm a better manager than I am an engineer, right. so okay. um, I really wanted to go and work for a company. Mm -hmm. And I also like establishing long-term relationships with colleagues in a business. I really enjoy that, and I did find that consulting was... Um, somewhat spasmodic in that you'd go in and do a work for someone for six months, you'd build relationships, but then that work would stop. Mm -hmm. So I was gravitating more towards uh, a career in what I thought was management at the time, mm -hmm. um, and also wanting to work for a company where I would have longevity of relationships in that company. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you went and joined Biomass. Richard, another another foray into the mad world of research and development. Right. Um, Biomass Energy Services and Technology was a, a really great little company. It was 50% owned by Energy Developments Limited, who's an okay. Australian public yeah. company that mm -hmm. I subsequently worked for. Mm -hmm. So it was a stepping stone in my mind. Right. A clear career choice to try and get eventually to energy developments. Okay, so you, you had that in your head even prior, prior to joining Biomass? I, I did, right. yeah. And what was it about? EDL that was uh, so attractive to you? Well, I was attracted because they're in the energy industry, which I liked, yeah. but they're in the small-scale power station end of the energy industry. So okay. rather than large coal-fired power stations, they yeah. owned smaller power stations mm -hmm. that provided either power for mines that were remote and not connected to the electricity grid, mm -hmm. uh, but they also had a business that utilised landfill gas to mm -hmm. produce electricity, um, another renewable energy source, mm -hmm. and took waste coal mine gas to produce electricity. They also had businesses in a number of other countries. We had quite a large business in Australia, 30-odd um, power stations at the time. We also had power stations in, uh, in Korea, China, Taiwan. France, Greece, the US and the UK. Mm -hmm. So I was really attracted to the sector. Mm -hmm. It had a renewable flavour about it. Mm -hmm. And they were developing some technologies for waste to energy as well. So I guess I could see a bit of an R&D bent, mm -hmm. but in, an, in a business that was well established, well respected and had positive cash flows. Okay, and so, uh, but Biomass being your entry point, you were MD of that business. I was MD of that business. Right. Biomass was a, a real R&D hothouse. Okay. It was really a skunk works for energy development. Okay. So, so any, for people who aren't familiar with that term, what does skunk works mean? So a skunk works is where a otherwise respectable company does the R&D that they wouldn't want to do in their own factory. Oh, okay, right. Um, uh. So we, we did lots of, uh, of R&D that was really, really you know, off-centre. Um, a lot of work with pyrolysis, um, of waste streams. We did a lot of work on um, trying to reduce, uh, remove um, unburned hydrocarbons from exhaust stream from engines. We did a lot of work on biofertiliser and okay. using char to promote 
um, to promote plant growth. Things that are very, very topical today, you know, mm-hmm. nearly 15 years later. Sure. And so uh, that was uh, ticking your boxes in terms of the boy who loved uh, tinkering with engines. Uh, and then two years into that role, you got your the outcome you were hoping for, which was to then roll into EDL. Well, Richard, I realised that um, BEST was a lot of fun. I was really enjoying it. Yeah. But it was um, uh, not professionally going to take me anywhere in my career. Okay. I would stay there as MD for the next 10 years and right. have a lot of fun, yeah. um, but that was never going to be a business with a big turnover. As okay. I say, it was a little a little R&D house. Mm-hmm. So I then um, left BEST and, and took a job at Energy Developments mm-hmm. and moved from the Central Coast near Sydney up to Brisbane mm-hmm. to take that job. And with them for 10 years? Yeah. Right. So how did uh, uh, your career evolve over that period of time? Well, I started my career there as the um, global group head of technical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was on the executive team reporting to the managing director, who was one of the founders, Paul Whiteman. Yeah. And I have to say that it was just an incredible job. Mm-hmm. Uh, firstly, it had the things that I really enjoyed doing, a lot of mechanical um, design. I ran a quite a large design team, fair bit of research and development with the waste to energy technology. Mm-hmm. But it was also a real commercial business with a substantial uh, revenue stream, positive EBITDA, and it was a public company. So it, it's at energy developments that I not only got you know, my personal satisfaction from doing the mechanical and the engineering things that I like to do, mm-hmm. but I started to cut my teeth as a senior and executive manager mm-hmm. and also understand what a public company is all about and what it's like to run a profit and loss business. Mm-hmm. And um, I note that uh, it was, uh, you know, about midway uh, through your EDL time that you went to Harvard and, and did uh, the uh, residential program there. So. In the lead up to that, I mean, you're still a young guy, you're achieving great results in terms of your career. Uh, How are you keeping your leadership skills uh, developing whilst at the same time, you know, obviously very much in roles that required you to uh, be on the tools? Well, Richard, I was lucky enough to work under um, some terrific managing directors, starting with Paul Whiteman, who founded the business and was incredibly entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. and driven. Uh, Then to Chris Laurie, who came in really as a very steadying hand um, and helped the business get out of some difficult times after we had had to stop developing one of the technologies, and that was financially difficult for the business. Mm -hmm. And then under Greg Pritchard, um, who's the managing director to this day, um, who really led the company then through the next phase of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave me great opportunities, Richard, and they threw those opportunities at me and I lapped them all up sometimes, um, perhaps when I shouldn't have, but they were great leadership opportunities. So I got to run a pretty big team. So what do you think it was about you and you know what you were demonstrating that gave them the confidence that they could throw these you know big challenges at you? Uh, maybe I was silly enough to say yes each time, <laughs> Richard. Um, <laughs> But I'd like to think that I um, I worked really transparently with right. my, my boss, the managing okay. director, and yep. with the board, that when things were tough, mm-hmm. things weren't going as we wanted them to, mm-hmm. that I would be very transparent, even if I was responsible for the problem we were in, very transparent, and mm-hmm. if something was material, I mm-hmm. would... I would report that to the boss and to the board very quickly. And that's something that I really learnt in that role through some very difficult projects, that transparency when times are tough is mm-hmm. very, very important. And certainly something that I expect uh, as, as a cultural part of the business that sure. I now run. Absolutely. And so when you were looking at your peers in the business, because no doubt there were many people at your level or equivalent who were also ambitious and so on, uh, do you think it was that transparency of communication that was something that was, you know, a bit unique to you that created opportunities that perhaps they weren't embracing as much? Um, that could well be the case, although I would say that because it was a reasonable sized business, we yeah. had some other leaders in the business that were sure. working side by side mm-hmm. with me. So I was part of a, an executive team of a half a dozen or so, mm-hmm. and I would like to think that they were all, in fact, they were all pretty transparent and great leaders. And mm-hmm. I learned a lot from the other executives in the business who were often more experienced than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that time, uh, were you based out at West Kimberley? Yeah, so for a couple of years I was um, the project director of the West Kimberley Power Project, Mm -hmm. a really exciting project, again technically groundbreaking. We built a small scale liquefied natural gas plant Mm -hmm. and we built power stations in Broome, Derby, Fitzroy Crossing, uh, Halls Creek and Luma 
and we, as a first of application, as far as I know anywhere in the world, right. we were trucking the LNG in triple road trains from our plant at Caratha to those towns and providing the LNG, storing it there and using the LNG to produce mm-hmm. electricity for the towns. Mm-hmm. So fantastic project that still operates to this day, but very challenging, both geographically, it's a long way from Perth to Caratha and mm-hmm. Caratha sure. to the furthermost town, 800 kilometres really challenging when the mining and oil and gas boom were on to get contractors to even do the work for you was mm-hmm. at times impossible mm-hmm. um, accommodation was impossible in towns like Caratha where would we would have to fly people in and out every day um, to get them to work so uh, very challenging project and again a project where I learned that transparency is just so important because we did run over budget and late on that project. Mm -hmm. So I spent a significant amount of time during that period in Western Australia, both in Perth uh, and at Broome and thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, your parents, your family were here in Brisbane? Yeah, I was really doing a a weekly commute. I was still based in Brisbane and I'd be here generally a couple of days a week and then jump on the Tuesday night flight to uh, Perth and the Red Eye Eye and then the morning flight up to Broome. So a lot of travel during that period. And so, and it was after that that you then went to Harvard and did the residential program there. That's right. I went to Harvard in 2008. Yeah, which is not an insignificant investment, both in terms of uh, time and cost. Uh, so the choice to go and do that is, um, uh, did you? Uh, that must have been a, a big decision for you. Well, it was a big decision for me, but I really have to thank the... Um, the company Energy Developments mm-hmm. and the managing director at the time, Chris Laurie, supported me into that program. Mm-hmm. And it does require significant commitment from the company because mm-hmm. you take an executive out of a role and the company has to undertake not to ask them to work during the period. For sure. And they have to meet the cost of it. So mm-hmm. two months away mm-hmm. and a fantastic opportunity. Mm. And so for people who aren't very familiar with that, uh, I mean, certainly from in my role as a uh, in executive search, when somebody has that qualification, there's no doubt that it is extremely well regarded in the market. Tell, tell people a little a bit about what you did there. So the, the program is, it's not an MBA, but it's like a condensed high-level MBA, if I could put it that way. You study with a group of about 160 other people from all around the world, mm-hmm. um, quite a good representation from Australia and New Zealand, but genuinely from all around the world, from all walks of life. But what characterises them is that they're all in senior executive roles. Um, it's a course that you have to compete to get into. Mm-hmm. So very high level of candidates, and I was quite humbled by some of the experience of the other um, people that were on the course. You use a, a, the case study method, which is um, uh, characteristic for Harvard MBAs, mm-hmm. really top class professors that have come generally out of industry and are really well regarded um, in the industry as leadership coaches and other types of coaches. And it's a very intense program, mm-hmm. 16 hours a day, six days a week, you get the middle weekend off and that's it. You really and, work hard during that period. And you're literally living uh, on top of each other for that period, aren't you? You live on campus in a living group. You're in a you're in a uh, living quarter with eight other people. Mm-hmm. That's your group. So you eat, sleep with them, and mm-hmm. study with them. Mm-hmm. So every night after after being in lectures all day, you would sit down with that group and spend four or five hours going through the case studies for the mm-hmm. next day. Mm-hmm. Often uh, competing to who can buy the most expensive bottles of wine, from what I understand. There was very nice uh, red wine shops and wine shops in uh, in Boston. Yes. It's a lovely city, and uh, yes, there was quite a few people, including me, that enjoyed a drop. Uh, fair enough. And so, uh, if you look at your career post having done that qualification, you know, what what would be uh, some evidence in your own mind as to how that's really assisted you? Well, Richard, I think that I was really influenced by one of the um, one of the guest speakers we had, who's mm-hmm. now a professor at Harvard guy called Bill George okay. and Bill had had a, a distinguished career in uh, in medical uh, research and pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. he'd been the CEO of a fairly big pharmaceutical company and he wrote a book called True North and that that book is all about um, your authentic leadership style and he focuses on the fact that um, great leaders aren't superheroes they're just people that have used experiences which are often tragedies or difficult experiences mm-hmm. in their life to shape their leadership style. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that I came away from Harvard certainly with a kit bag full of tools for leadership, but most importantly, with the feeling that I should use my own values and my own um, experiences mm -hmm. to shape my leadership style and not what be worried about getting pulled to a particular style or other. Mm -hmm. I learned during that course and got the confidence um, that if I used what was authentic to me and trusted my values, that that was the best way for me to be a good leader. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to apply that um, since the course. Okay. And so uh, you return uh, from Harvard back uh, to um, EDL in the role now Executive General Manager Australia. So give us a bit of an idea of the scope of that role. Now, Richard, in Australia, Energy Developments at the time had uh, 32 power stations. Mm -hmm. We had 26 power stations on the east coast in the national electricity market, um, both waste coal mine gas and landfill gas. And we had a number of remote energy power stations providing power to um, mines mm -hmm. in, uh, in far north Queensland uh, and the Northern Territory. Mm -hmm. So quite a large business geographically. And we also had, of course, the West Kimberley Power Project in, in Western Australia. Sure. So at that time, the mining boom was on and we were trying to grow our business, particularly in the mining and remote energy sector. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very exciting role with full P&L responsibility. And, and what sort of headcount and uh, turnover would it have been there? There was about 180 uh, people okay. in the business. Right. And turnover well north of $100 million. Right. Okay. So uh, it's interesting, um, you know, people probably don't really know too much about EDL uh, if they don't work in the sector. It's a little bit of a, uh, you know, a fly under the radar type business, but an extremely successful one. It's a very exciting business, Richard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, then, um, and then from there you moved into Executive General Manager Remote Energy. Yeah. At, at about that time, Energy Developments, which was a, a publicly listed company, mm -hmm. um, was subject to a takeover battle, mm -hmm. and that was won by a private equity firm who ended up taking 80% of the stock. So it remained publicly listed, but mm -hmm. the private equity business owned 20%. So it was an aggressive uh, Owned 80%, I beg your pardon. It was an aggressive style takeover? Uh, yes, it was, Richard. Right, okay. Um, but it all turned out well. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so the, the, the private equity business, Pacific Equity Partners, yeah. put a... a Put a real focus on the business and mm -hmm. I learn a lot from working on those guys about determining what the key value drivers mm -hmm. are and having unwavering focus on it. Mm -hmm. And at the time our view was that the remote energy business was a big area for growth okay. and that to grow that business we had to establish a better base in Western Australia because okay. that's where most of the action was. Mm -hmm. um, so against my better judgment at the time, uh, the company decided that I should move away from running the Australian business and singularly focus on growing the remote energy business in Western Australia. Mm -hmm. And when I look back on that, that was the right decision for mm -hmm. the business and for me. Mm -hmm. So I went and looked for opportunities in WA and with my colleagues on the executive team, identified um, companies that we could buy so that we could quickly establish a presence in Perth, mm -hmm. which is a very parochial place to do sure, business. absolutely. And we identified a business called NGen that was owned by West Farmers, and we acquired that business from West Farmers, and I went over to establish that and mm -hmm. combine that mm -hmm. with our own energy developments mm -hmm. business. So unlike previously where you were flying in and flying out, you moved there with the family? I moved, I moved over and was based in Perth, but right. our kids at the time were both in school. Okay. So my wife stayed here right. uh, with them. So there was a lot of traveling to sure. and fro, but I was yeah. based in Perth during okay. that 18 month period. Okay, yep. And um, uh, I think it's interesting, uh, uh, you've worked in uh, private enterprise, you've owned your own businesses, you've worked in large listed, now you're working in a business which is owned 80% by private equity. Mm. I mean, all have very different drivers in terms of, you know, what are the sort of the, the immediate short term uh, priorities? How did you find that you needed to adapt your own sort of leadership style and uh, and or cultural orientation to adapt and then flourish in that type of environment? Yeah, so the private equity team were there to own their portion of that business for three to five years and, right. and then would exit. It was a closed fund. Yeah. So they had a real focus on creating value during mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. And it's easy in a normal business um, that isn't private equity owned that doesn't have that focus to sometimes lose focus on what's important and what really drives value for your stakeholders mm -hmm. and particularly for your shareholders. Mm -hmm. So they provided that 
absolute focus. Mm-hmm. And I often look back and think that we did things that we knew we should have done before, but just hadn't done. Yeah. So they really were enablers for the executive team to get on, do what had to be done to create shareholder value for that okay. business. Okay. Um, and so you're over in WA, you're there for uh, a couple of years. Yep. And then uh, what happened from there? Yeah, I was in WA for two years, so I'd spent a lot of time away from the East Coast where my family was, um, including my mum and dad, yep. and had a very busy period, mm-hmm. and I was coming back to the East Coast, uh, but really felt that it was a good time for me to have a break. I'd mm-hmm. been with Energy Developments for 11 years at that point, uh, and uh, I was reporting to the CEO for all of that time. So. In terms of next career step, uh, there was nowhere for me to go. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to have a break as well and spend some time with my family, including my mum and dad. So sure. I made the decision to leave EDL, mm-hmm. left on really good terms um, to the credit of the managing director, Greg Pritchard. Yeah. And I decided to have a six month break mm-hmm. um, and then to look for another job after that. Okay. And, uh, and during that break, what sort of things did you get up to? Well, I spent a lot of time with my family. I think right. I realised that I was missing them more than they were missing me. So mm-hmm. I was at home, um, my wife was working and the kids were at home studying and I soon realised that the kids didn't want me to go and talk to them every five minutes. Right. So we got used to living with each other again. Yeah. Um, I ticked another number of boxes I wanted to do, Richard. I got fit, increased my skills in some areas, uh-huh. um, went and spent a lot of time with my mum and my dad, which I hadn't done for quite a few years. And, mm-hmm. and my dad passed away during that year okay. um, uh, quite suddenly. So when I look back, you know, what a great thing to have been able yeah, to do. Absolutely. And I guess I just refreshed myself and thought about what I wanted to do mm-hmm. in the future. Mm. And so what, in terms of thinking about your career, what were the, the, the options that were playing in your mind that you were most interested in? So I was keen to get a CEO role, um, and I was keen for that to be in a small to mid-sized business. Yep. Uh, and if it could be in the energy or the renewable energy business, mm-hmm. um, that was really my focus. Mm-hmm. But I also um, wanted to go and do some work in the not-for-profit sector. Okay. And when I look at things I'd like to do in the future, playing a role in not-for-profit is mm-hmm. one of them. So mm-hmm. I used that time off to look for a role um, in a not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for you, not only was that an opportunity to make a contribution, but it, it was a very personal thing for you, wasn't it? Yeah, Richard, it was. Um, in 2006, I was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, mm-hmm. um, which is a blood cancer, uh, and that's quite a shock uh, to you and to your family, sure. and quite confronting. And I, I think that that experience, looking back, has shaped the way I approach a lot of things now, particularly mm-hmm. focusing on the things that really matter mm-hmm. rather than those that don't. But I was really lucky in that. Um, only a number of years beforehand, a drug had been released, mm-hmm. um, which was really considered to be a wonder drug at the time, which targeted the cancerous reproduction of white blood cells mm-hmm. and stopped them. Okay. So it's not a chemo, it doesn't cure the right. cancer, but it stops the growth of it. Okay, so it's an inhibitor. It's an inhibitor. Right, and so how um, uh, did you initially come to understand that you had that condition? Richard, I had a routine blood test. Okay. Um, I was otherwise very fit and very healthy. I had a routine blood test and found that I had um, 10 times the number of white blood cells that I should. Okay. Um, and uh, the next next day I had another blood test and that revealed that I had um, chronic myeloid leukemia. Right. And so uh, literally by maintaining this medication, uh, the prognosis is good. It is. So at the time I went on the medication, it was pretty new. Yeah. And so its long-term effects were not that well known, but okay. I've now been on it for nearly 10 years. Right. Um, and uh, it that drug has kept me in remission for that period of time. Mm. So mm. although, uh, again, the really long-term impact of that drug is somewhat unknown, mm-hmm. the thought now in the medical community is that if you've gone well for five years, you'll be right. okay for life. Yeah, good. So oh. that's pretty good. Okay, great. And so... Uh, how did the uh, board opportunity with leukemia come up for you then? Well, I used my professional network to try and get a link into the not-for-profit sector yeah. and um, and made that link and just started going and meeting with people in the okay. not-for-profit sector. Yeah. 
um, and I was really motivated to do it. In fact, it was a lesson about how I should try and get a, a paying job. Right. And I was lucky enough to be put in contact with the president, Bev Morollo, of mm-hmm. the Leukaemia Foundation of Queensland, um, and that was a, a, a target for me. I was looking for a medical not-for-profit yeah. um, and lucky enough to get to know Bev and got to know her, her over a period of six months and then was nominated for a board position on right. the Leukaemia Foundation. So it was more fortuitous uh, that you ended up being on the board of the not-for-profit looking after the condition that you have had personal experience with rather than by design. It was, Richard. It was good luck rather than good management. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I I recruit a lot of board roles for -for Mm not-for-profits. I've always done that on a pro bono basis, so the not-for-profits like me because I'm free. And uh, quite often, you know, for example, I've done a lot of board recruitment for Autism Queensland, and part of their charter is that a person joining their board must have some direct personal experience, either a child or through their work or, you know, with the condition. uh, and I think that it, it brings, uh, uh, you know, a different level of commitment to the board. You know, I'm sure that uh, your engagement because of you going through that experience would be different to somebody who, who hadn't. Sure, I think it is, Richard. I and mean, we have board members um, that have been affected by leukaemia or blood cancers in one way or another of their life. Yeah. And it's very humbling when you meet people that have been involved in the foundation for 40 years. We mm. had our 40-year anniversary last year. Right. They've been involved in the foundation for 40 years and they started in it because they lost a loved one, a child mm-hmm. or a parent through leukaemia. Mm-hmm. And these people have really committed their life to that. And that's very, very humbling mm-hmm. um, and just a real privilege to get to know those people and to work with them. Sure. And, uh, you know, again, a lot of the CEOs that I know or senior leaders would love to be on a not-for-profit board. I mean, you've balanced uh, not only being a CEO, but being a CEO in businesses that are either under, you know, a lot of external pressure or um, are in sort of fairly new technology spaces where no doubt your CEO gig is more than a full-time job in itself. How do you balance that uh, with the, you know, the requirement to give the right level of commitment to your not-for-profit board? Well, Richard, I think that um, personally, I have more time than I did five years ago because our daughters are both working. Um, They don't live at home anymore. So that commitment to drive them to netball on the weekend or to school sport or other activities has gone. So I think I've somewhat replaced that family Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. with being able to do the not-for-profit. But I genuinely believe that having a broader uh, experience aids both jobs. I mm-hmm. think I'm a better CEO in my paid position with Geodynamics because of the experience and the balance I get working on the Leukemia Foundation mm-hmm. board. So okay. I think they marry together pretty well. Yeah, okay, great. So, uh, but before Geodynamics, uh, you headed down to Melbourne for a while? I did. I went to Melbourne for two years and this time I went with my wife. So right. we lived down there and really enjoyed living in Melbourne. And I was um, the CEO of a small R&D company, got mm-hmm. attracted back to that again, Richard, yep. uh, that was developing a high concentration solar voltaic technology. Okay, so for a, the layperson, what does that mean? So that means that rather than have uh, solar cells on the roof and you're just shining the sun on that particular cell, okay. we had a concentrator that was a parabola that concentrated the sunlight by 500 times. So if you imagine as a kid, you get the magnifying glass and the sunlight and you use that to uh, start a grass fire or burn ants or whatever you did as a kid. Uh, We use that same principle to concentrate sunlight onto a really um, high efficiency multi-layer solar cell, Mm -hmm. the type of solar cells that are used in satellites. Right. So the idea was you use the the concentrator, which are pretty cheap materials, steel Mm -hmm. and glass, Mm -hmm. to concentrate sunlight onto a cell that's 500 times smaller than if it was just the sun shining on it. But this is for domestic application? No, this is for commercial and utility scale applications, Richard. Uh And that business was owned by a US parent? No, it's an Australian parent, a company called Silex. And Silex are a publicly listed technology developer Uh that were developing a uranium enrichment technology and still are. Mm -hmm. And they had um, bought a number of other technologies and seeded some other technology developments uh, of Mm -hmm. which Solar Systems was one. Right, and when you joined, at what point was the technology, was it uh, proven and commercialised yet or, or not at that point? At the point I joined, the technology 
technically worked and worked very well. Mm -hmm. We had built a number of demonstration power stations, including a couple in Australia that had okay. received some federal and state government funding. Mm -hmm. And we also had a power station that we had sold to a Saudi prince located okay. near Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Right. So the technology was proven technically, but it was commercially challenge, challenging because of the reduction in price of flat panel solar. Right. So for those who know the industry, the price of installing flat panel solar has come down by an order of magnitude in the last 10 years mm -hmm. and continues to drop extremely quickly. So other technologies like the one we were developing are struggling to compete. Mm -hmm. But we found a really good application for our technology where you could produce electricity from the solar, solar voltaic cells, right. but also utilize the heat that was generated okay. to in a process that needed heat. And the application mm -hmm. we found was in the Middle East and it was to use the, um, the technology to provide electricity and hot water to desalination plants. Okay. So we found a really, uh, I guess, a boutique application, although the scale of that boutique application is very large in sure. the Middle East. Okay. And so what was it uh, uh, that then uh, caused you to exit that business? Well, unfortunately, our parent company, Silex, had some difficulties uh, in developing their own technology okay. and in their commercial arrangements, and they weren't able to continue to fund the business. And although the technology uh, had great application in the Middle East, mm -hmm. the challenges of doing business in the Middle East, um, particularly 12 months ago when there was a lot of instability uh, in the Middle East and when oil prices were dropping, mm -hmm. made it really impossible for us to complete a deal in the mm -hmm. Middle East to sell a technology um, to okay. that part of the world. So okay. Silex made the decision that they would stop funding the business. Okay, so essentially your role was made redundant. Exactly right. I actually yeah. actually completed the wind-up of the business okay. and uh, sold off most of the, the components and the equipment and so forth right. and wound the business up and came back to Brisbane. And did you come back to Brisbane for Geodynamics or the choice was to come back here and then Geodynamics happened post that? Yeah, Richard, the choice was to come back here because our kids were still here. Sure. So while we love Melbourne, if I wasn't working there, we moved back to Brisbane mm -hmm. for personal reasons, and we do like Brisbane, mm -hmm. it is home. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, very shortly after that, the opportunity arose with Geodynamics. Okay. And so uh, I always find it interesting. I mean, you've been here since January. So what are we now? You're about five, four, five months into the role. Um, that's a pretty critical time for a CEO coming into a new business. They talk about the, the first 90 days. Uh, you know, when you came in, what was your original mandate and you know, what, what are some of the things that you did in terms of your own uh, engagement in the business during that first 90 day period? So Richard, when I came in, I was in the really fortunate position that the previous CEO, Jeff Ward, had done a great job of wrapping up the work that Geodynamics was doing in geothermal. Mm -hmm. And we're right at the final stages now of remediating the power station that we had and the wells that we had over in the Cooper Basin. So Jeff had largely de-risked the balance sheet so that we can focus on a new business opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, they just bought Quantum Power. So my remit was really to embed Quantum Power in our business and grow the projects that Quantum Power came mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a great business development pipeline in a great industry as we discussed earlier. So bed that business down, build those projects. Um, as well as looking for the next step for geodynamics. What do we want to add? What other strings do we want to add to our bow to mm -hmm. round out our biogas to energy business? Mm -hmm. And so um, I imagine that's uh, going to be an ongoing work in progress uh, into the future. Um, in terms of the early goals, uh, do you feel that uh, you know, you've got a good foothold on the business now and uh, you're starting to really be able to take control and steer the ship in what has been a relatively short period of time? I think so, Richard. It's a pretty small business, although it does have some complexity. Yeah. But I really wanted to get to know the business mm -hmm. as well as I could in the first, well, the first 30 days. Sure, okay. So I made it my business to go and visit our sites, to mm -hmm. go and meet our customers and our future customers, mm -hmm. to meet our stakeholders in um, federal government in particular, mm -hmm. uh, and in the government agencies that are supporting the development of renewable energy projects. Mm -hmm. So I've really focused during that time on getting to know the business as well as I could, mm -hmm. getting to know the great people that we've got in the business and supporting them in their roles. 
um, and also in looking for the other string for our bow. Yeah, sure. And so what is it that you're uh, you know, most excited about at the moment when you're, you're looking sort of the next six to 12 months down uh, in the geodynamic story? Uh, what, what gets you up and excited to come to work each day? Look, th- those opportunities that I mentioned earlier, Richard, to combine the need for intensive farming and agribusiness mm-hmm. in Australia with the need for renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So when we can go to the owner of a farm or an abattoir and say, we will take your waste stream, we'll turn it into electricity and sell that electricity back to you cheaper than you will pay from your retailer. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really exciting business opportunity. I think it's fantastic. So I'm, I'm really, really pleased with the focus that we're getting at a community level mm-hmm. and at a government level on changing our energy mix more towards renewables. Mm-hmm. And when you're going and meeting these farmers, I mean, is this something that is completely new and essentially foreign to them, or have they got a good level of awareness of you know what's happening in this space already? No, most of the people that I'm meeting are not particularly aware of what's happening, right. because they're not compelled to do this. Okay. At the moment, they can buy electricity from a retailer, yep. and they, they adequately treat their waste streams now. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason for them to do this if we didn't come along and say right. we'll build a power station and a sure. waste treatment plant for you and supply you with electricity mm-hmm. so probably our key competitor is the, the owner of the facility not doing anything right and so what would be uh some of their resistance to potentially going down this path what are the sort of typical objections you might hear well they they don't want to put the capital in themselves, Richard. So okay. we have a commercial model where we put all the capital in, we right. build, own, operate and maintain the plant. So mm-hmm. there's no capital risk for them. Mm-hmm. But primarily, they want to get their produce out the door. Right. Whether that's whether that's livestock, whether that's sure. meat, whether it's a rendering plant and getting their products out the door. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to do anything or have anyone on their site that'll interfere with them doing their key business. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the key issue for me, yep. is to assure the owners of the facilities that we won't get in their way mm-hmm. and that we'll be a reliable electricity supplier. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that once you get a few projects which are proven, then suddenly you're gonna have uh, um, you know these examples to be able to point towards and say, well, uh, here it is, it's working incredibly well. And I imagine at that point, uh, you know, a lot of those objections are gonna go away, aren't they? Richard, they will. I think from both our customers' point of view and our stakeholders, including shareholders mm-hmm. and debt providers' point of view, mm-hmm. the next 12 months is really critical. We need to show customers that we can build projects on their facilities mm-hmm. that will deliver them a cheaper cost of energy, that we won't get in their way, that we'll do it on time and on budget, mm-hmm. and we need to show our shareholders that we've got a path to positive cash flows and to shareholder value. Mm-hmm. So a really critical time for the business over the next 12 months to say what we're going to do and to do it. Mm. And I imagine also to get that first mover advantage because by the time it's really uh, proven, there's suddenly going to be a whole heap of other people wanting to come into the market and you need to create some uh, where, you know, some blue ocean between you and them. We do, Richard. So at the moment, we were, we're the only provider in Australia that will do a build, own, operate, maintain model on these projects. Mm-hmm. And we're lucky in that the projects aren't large enough to attract some of the larger energy companies. Yep. And they're a bit bigger than can be done by um, individual mm-hmm. people or very small businesses because you've got to put the capital on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're in a, a good position at the moment where we have got first mover advantage, mm-hmm. but I'm under no illusions that when we make that successful that there'll be others who want to come into the space. Yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of your own career, uh, um, you're fairly new into this role. If you were to look sort of five to ten years into the future for yourself, what are the kind of things that you'd hope that you'd be achieving then? Well, Richard, this is a a publicly listed company and it's a micro cap. Mm -hmm. I'd be more than happy in the next five years if I can keep this as a publicly listed company but get it to be a small cap or a medium cap. Right, okay. So I think for me professionally, there's plenty of growth here for the next five years at Mm -hmm. least. I really want to see this business prosper, get a return for our shareholders, get staff that know that they're working in a business that's really adding value, providing Mm -hmm. environmental benefits. Though I think I've got um, plenty here to challenge me right. for the next five years. And as you said, uh, also look at further alternative uh, 
opportunities to broaden out your offering to the market. That's right, Richard. I think there's other opportunities that are only one step away from the businesses we're in now, mm -hmm. agribusiness and renewable energy, that can really enhance the product offering we've got to existing mm -hmm. customers and broaden our customer base without stepping too far away from where our expertise is. Mm, okay. Part of the motivation of this podcast is for people who are aspiring to uh, be CEOs and non-executive directors to listen to those who have walked the path before them and uh, hopefully learn uh, mm -hmm. uh, from their uh, experience in order to apply to their own careers. I mean, you've talked a little bit about you know some of the uh, the early things that you were doing to accelerate your own career around transparency and you know certainly going and doing that Harvard qualification and so on. But if you were advising uh, younger people who are hoping to achieve the similar outcomes in their career to what you have, what, what, what would be some of the things that you would uh, impart to them from your own experience? Well, I would, I would encourage people to try and get a fairly broad range of experiences. Mm -hmm. I know there are career paths that are very um, narrow in terms of technical mm -hmm. expertise and let's say a medical researcher and that's great if that's the career that someone is choosing but if we're talking about a person that wants to get into an executive management or a CEO role I think that having a broader experience mm. is very valuable whether that be different industries but more particularly working in different areas of an industry you know mm -hmm. working in business development working in sales working in operations working in projects getting a broad base mm -hmm. so that as CEO when you're talking to the different leaders in your business you can challenge them sure. based on your own experience mm -hmm. so I think getting that broad business base is really important and do you think organizations are encouraging and supporting that enough no, generally not. Okay. I think generally organisations will get a person where they'd like to have them and if yeah. they're getting value out of them there, they'll be happy for them to stay there. Yeah. Um, so I think that getting that broad base is important for technically based people. Mm -hmm. Getting some financial acumen is incredibly important, Richard. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would certainly encourage uh, people that have a technical background to do some formal courses, mm -hmm. whether that's a, a finance master's or an accounting 101 course or a, or a project finance course, to get a broad, to get increase their financial skills so they can understand a balance sheet, understand a P&L, understand a discounted cash flow. Mm. I think that's absolutely fundamental mm -hmm. for any senior leader or CEO. Mm, interesting. And I imagine, you know, your daughters, you were saying that they're sort of at an age where they're they're very early in their career, but they've mm -hmm. completed their studies. Yep. What, what are the, some of the, the challenges you're seeing them face uh, that are different to what you faced at that time in your life? Well, Richard, the key challenge I think is to make sure that they can find jobs in their chosen profession. Wow. So both my daughters are lucky enough to be working and they're, they're both working in the medical services profession. Okay. But even for them, it was a challenge getting a job and there are mm. there were um, people in their cohort that didn't get jobs so mm -hmm. getting a job and getting experience that you can fall back to I think is so important when you finish your uni course mm. uh, and then once you've got a couple of years under your belt and you know that you can go back to that profession because of your experience then look at what other further courses or how to broaden your experience or, mm. or change your career direction mm. but I think establishing yourself in a career early so that you've always got that to fall back to is really mm. important because the, the ability to, for people to walk straight out of uni and into jobs is not like it was when I went to uni. No, it's interesting. I uh, a week ago spoke at an Australian Institute of Management um, uh, event about around personal branding. And yep. There were 70 odd younger members of AIM in the audience and you know, who t asking questions about, you know, in terms of my personal brand, should I blog, should I do this, should I do, you know, and it's, well, really, my advice is what you need to do is just do your job really, really well. Yeah. And uh, allow your professional success to become the foundation of your personal brand. And uh, it seems to me that uh, a lot of people are trying to run you know, young people are trying to run towards, you know, the excitement of Richard Branson's brand yeah. without remembering that, you know what, he worked bloody hard and he kicked some big goals. Uh, that created the brand. It wasn't just about, you know, him racing around in hot air balloons. Yeah, I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, look, um, Chris, uh, we've talked a lot about work today and so on. I, uh, I like to close out to just, you know, when you're not at work, what are the kind of things that you enjoy to do to keep uh, you fresh and, and your batteries charged? 
Well, look, my wife and I firstly love to spend time with our daughters. We have a family dinner every week and it's great to have them over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also great to be able to send them home when we're ready to go to sure. bed. Yeah. So firstly, we just love to spend time with them and with our broader family. And it's great to be able to do that now um, with a bit more time in our hands. Mm-hmm. We love to spend time with friends to travel. We travel to wineries a fair bit. Okay. Really enjoy doing that. And we've recently taken up sailing. So right. again, just having that bit of extra time okay. to uh, to learn some new skills outside of work is what we're enjoying sort of at the moment. Hobie cat type boat or what? No, no, uh, on a on a, a proper yacht, Richard. Right. So we've really been enjoying it. Oh, fantastic! Uh, I've. Uh, enjoyed my friends boats but i don't know that i'd ever buy one for myself <laughs> uh, well we're in it we're in a share ownership so oh, it's eh? a very very effective and a oh, great great way for us to learn a bit about yachting um you know looking for those things that in the future when we don't work full-time that we might like to do as sure. enjoyment and uh, do you have this uh you know a grand vision of sailing around the world and and doing that kind of adventure uh, no, Richard, I've got a grand vision of champagne sailing on the weekend in right. Bay or, okay, or up in the Sundays. Oh, that sounds excellent. Well, look, Chris, I really appreciate your time. And uh, certainly for people who have listened in, we'll put into the show notes uh, a lot of links to the business and the things that we've talked about today. But uh, I'm sure you've got lots to do. So uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Been a pleasure. Thanks again for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.